once upon a time, the slightest whiff of a scandal would result in immediate resignation. Now, as they say, anything goes. And people in positions of power can get away with lies, adultery, murder, starting wars to bolster approval ratings. And it is in this modern, non-stick era, which is why I, Liam Hogan, am allowed back for yet another year of hosting Liars League, where writers write, actors read, audience listens, and nobody gets impeached. We're kicking off 2020 with more lies than a newly minted Brexit 50 pence coin. With our first theme of the year, scoundrels and scandals. We'll have three scurrilous tales in the first half, followed by a brief adjournment while our lawyers analyse the handwriting on a series of particularly upsetting blackmail letters I received just before getting up on stage. Before we return with the infamous Lisley book quiz. The infamous Lisley book quiz. And end with two more quite shocking stories. But what of love, you may well ask? Is it not nearly Valentine's? Yes, it is. But I've just had an unhappy love affair, so I don't see why any of you lot should have a good time. <laughs> now, you may be rogues. You may be rascals, reprobates, and rapscallions. You may be cheats, or swindlers, or charlatans. You might even be bounders, blighters, and yes, bastards. But I do hope you have the moral decency to set your phones to off or to silence before we begin. Otherwise, I might have to throw the rest of the English dictionary at you, and you wouldn't want that. And so to begin, the first story of the evening will be The Kiss by Brindley Hallam Dennis, read by Sophie Cartman. Brinley writes short stories, many of which have been published, performed, and prize-winning. He lives on the edge of England and blogs. Writing as Mike Smith, he has published poetry, plays, and essays, mostly on short form. A Rose Bruford College graduate, Sophie studied American theatre arts. Theatre includes appearances at Soho, ADC, Arcola, the Crucible at Buxton Opera House, and The Secret Life of Sissy Tancock at Hackney Empire. TV, film, radio credits include Monster 1983, Evil Never Dies, Suspicion on Discovery ID, a Tokyo drama on BBC Radio 4, and Twirly Woos on CBeebies. Sophie! by Brindley Hallam Dennis. The two couples, not often, but three or four times a year, 
would get together for a meal in a small restaurant or bistro cafe near the city centre. At that time of the early evening, when the office workers have departed in their cars or on their trains and buses, and the late night diners have not yet arrived, they would meet at whatever car park was nearest. Traffic would ignore them, going in the opposite direction, either for or resigned to home. Buses lit up like chandeliers would pass them by. Pedestrians wrapped up in their thoughts against chill would walk on. The scent of late flowers overhanging the pavements and brushed against wafted on the evening air. She would always drive both ways. He would drive there, but not back. It was no use pretending. The two men always drank more than was good for them when they got together. His wife didn't mind. Besides, she rarely drank. All four were full of what they had to tell each other. The car park would be empty and quiet and grey, for they were too busy with their lives to meet during the summer months. The men would shake hands, the women would hug and kiss, and the women would hug and kiss the men. They could feel the vibration of distant motors through their shoes. She always hugged more tightly than he thought she would, even though he had learned to expect it. He was taken by surprise, but he he was always conscious of the feel of her bra strap across her back, and he always hugged more tightly than he thought she would expect. He would go in to kiss the air beside her cheek, but she would kiss his cheek, a brief, wet warmth on his skin. They would sit at small tables, boy, girl, boy, girl, opposite their own partner. Over the meal, they would catch up with each other's news, the women would show holiday photographs on their phones. They would pass them around the table, and as they did so, her fingertips would touch his, and he would press his fingertips against hers, maintaining the contact while they both looked at whatever photograph was on the small screen. But they never looked or even glanced at each other's faces into each other's eyes. As the drink flowed, they would become noisier, chattering away across each other, over each other, across the table, over the heaped plates of food, couple to couple, changing partners as they talked. The two men would discuss work. The women would discuss children. The women would discuss work. The men would discuss children. They would all discuss holidays they had taken, projects, they were involved with, plans they were making. They were such different couples. Perhaps that was why they enjoyed each other's company so much. He knew there was not much love lost between them and the other couple. It did not leak out into the evening air. It did not waft on the evening air like the scent of flowers brushed against on the pavement. It did not pulse on the evening air like the vibration of distant motors. She seemed to him like a motor, not yet running. She seemed to him like a flower, not brushed against. She seemed to be full of untapped love. He thought she was waiting. He imagined 
a dam burst of love breaking from her. He wanted to undress her, gently, as if to leave undisturbed for as long as possible the rupturing of some membrane, a meniscus holding back that torrent of love. He liked to believe that she wanted that. He liked to believe that that was what she was waiting for. She would let him be tender, unhurried. She would enable that by her passivity, he thought. That particular night had been different. He had not drunk after all. They had chosen a Muslim restaurant, which was unlicensed. The food had been wonderful, and they had drunk water flavored with lemon and elderflowers. It had surprised them how easy it was to do without the alcohol. The food, so rich and varied, so colorful, so tasty, had excited them as much as the drink would have done. Besides, they knew each other so well already, it wasn't as if there was any ice between them that needed breaking. There were no awkward silences. They had all the pent-up news of the summer to relate to one another. Seeing their reflection in the mirrored walls, you wouldn't have noticed any difference, save for the jugs of water on the table instead of empty wine bottles. They were heady with all the food they had eaten. It was dark when they returned. Tall lamps threw their shadows to the tarmac and their cars blinked orange eyes in the darkness. Their own eyes glittered with enjoyment. They hugged and kissed in the car park, a rerun of their greeting ritual. He could feel her breasts pressing against his chest. He tried to kiss her cheek, but their faces met clumsily, mouth to mouth in the darkness. Their mouths were hungry as if they had not eaten. Thank you, Sophie. No, 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 go ahead, speak. Our second story of the evening will be To All the Avatars I've Loved Before by Erica Buick. Read by Kim Scopes. Erica is a journalist, mostly for The Guardian. She started writing short stories after finishing her first book, a hybrid of memoir and journalism called This Party's Dead, in which she travelled to seven festivals for the dead. It will be published by Unbound in February 2021. Kim is an actress, puppeteer, and theatre maker who trained at East 15. Previous credits include Blue by Sakurak's Collective, A Christmas Carol at the Noel Howard Theatre, and Newsoids for ITV. Kim! To All the Avatars I've Loved Before by Erica Buist. She felt sheepish when she realised that her avatar had fallen in love with his. Her avatar was, was supposed to be more aloof than that, 
a persona reflected in a carefully chosen profile pic, an abundance of shiny curls falling loosely about the half-smile of someone who's thinking of a devastating joke. His avatar was a shot of him leaning on a doorframe, staring into the camera with dark, ardent eyes the size of goddamn dinner plates. He was clad in a leather jacket over a t-shirt with the word atheist printed in tiny, bold letters. She ignored the fact that he was obviously smoulderingly attracted to whoever took the photo. In her hyper-romantic mind, he was a kind of human embodiment of London. He had the same raw, dishevelled, long blackening beauty and was usually wrapped in smoke. He too was exhausting, addictive and exasperatingly easy to miss. Of course, their avatars had fallen into conversation. That was almost inevitable. They ran in similar online circles. Their bodies were both writers. He wrote darkly comic novels and fiery, funny Twitter threads. She wrote personal and cultural essays, the old music review, and regularly found herself in a taxi headed for some BBC radio segment, her nerves fraying, while her avatar was very breezy about it all. Their avatars were both left-leaning and enjoyed brash and brilliant takedowns of the bad guys in their echo chamber, of course, which there were always plenty. Their humour tessellated. His avatars verbose, meandering, Doug Stanhope-esque's rants provided the perfect setup for hers to stroll in and topple the comic tension he'd constructed, which would invariably make his avatar reply, Ha! I officially love you. What her avatar felt for his was, above all, embarrassing. Because she assumed the attraction was to do with his talent, a stupid reason for anyone, since the ability to write good sentences is not sexually transmittable. Repressing it was much easier in the moments they weren't talking, because his avatar was, simply put, flirt. He repeatedly told her he was enamoured with her voice. The first time she voice noted him, he only replied, voice, with an emoji of her heart being pierced by an arrow. Though that was way back in the beginning, before they decided to invent their own emojis by typing them out. Like, hide space and t-shirt emoji, infinisoon emoji, and her personal favourite, Writes your name on school folder emoji. Such a flirt, her avatar reminded herself. It's not real. It, it's not real. One morning, his avatar sent a message that simply read, which one? Heels? It being so untethered to anything they'd been talking about, her avatar replied with a question mark. Him. Oops. Sorry. That was meant for my mum. Her. <sighs> Confusing me with your mother. Okay, good. Excuse me while I uh, fold up this red flag and put it away. Him. Don't put it away. Wear it as a dress on our first date. Her. Sure, great idea. That's not at all the kind of metaphor that opens a memoir. Him. <laughs> oh God, stop making me love you. Her. No, 
emoji. Inoji. The previous winter, his body had deleted all his social media accounts. Her avatar had missed his disproportionately to their level of interaction. After nearly a year of silence, his avatar re-emerged in her messages, told her he'd read a recently published book of essays that he thought she was beautifully, fiercely talented, that he was in awe of her. Her avatar was bowled over by this news, more so when his avatar stuck around, buzzing her inbox with chat, jokes, guess what happened to me today's, and after a few days of mere constant interaction, astonishingly honest confessions of his avatar's total infatuation with hers. Their avatars drenched each other in delight. They talked about work and books and politics and films and travel and tattoos and idiots and everything, 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 laughing and longing and studiously avoiding anything painful or too true from their bodies' real lives. His avatar joked that they should run away and get married on a Mexican beach during a hurricane and never leave. Their avatars rolled around in this daydream, topped it up and shaded it in with details. Look up Playa Ventura, just south of Acapulco. That's clearly the one. Check the hurricane schedule and meet me there. And remained untroubled by worries that bodies drag along with them, like the need for food and shelter, or indeed anything more than a hammock to fuck in. Her avatar noted with exasperation how much easier words came to his avatar than hers. It seemed unfair, since they both manipulated language for a living. His avatar typed like a man with nothing to lose. You are astonishing. I am obliterated by how incredible you are. I am humiliatingly fucking besotted with you. Just put it out, as if feelings have no consequences. Her avatar was hamstrung. Her responses got caught in her body's fingers at that damn junction between her first and second knuckle. Did they even make sense? The images he provoked in her. An eyelid fluttering on a full lower lip. Sweat spraying off the guitarist as he strikes across the fret. Her avatar couldn't type. You make me feel like a Foo Fighters chord change. But that's exactly how she would have said I love you if she could. Their bodies met outside a cafe in Charing Cross Road, fully prepared to destroy what their avatars had built. He'd probably drink coffee, weirdly, she body figured, and maybe wouldn't even find her attractive without all the insta-filters. She barely registered his face, so familiar from all the good morning selfies before his arms wrapped around her, a heady scent of cigarettes and sandalwood enveloping her just exactly as she imagined it would. Her blood lit up and it sped up and her avatar smiled. Hi, he whispered into her hair. Hi. She whispered back. His body held hers as if they were falling. She noted the faint thud 
of his heart on her front. She went to kiss him on the cheek, but forgot to pull out the hug first, so planted it softly on his neck. She stepped black, blushing, trying to style it out, as if her own heart was behaving normally, not trying to pull out of the chest and jump him. Goddamn nympho organ. His body did not drink coffee weirdly, and did not seem in the least disappointed in her body's face. Conversation flowed as it always had online, as if their avatars were speaking through them. Like his avatar, his body seemed to grant escape to every thought, as if there were little distinction between their importance and effect. He said she was beautiful, hilarious, talented, and look at the ridiculous way they described the coffees on this menu. She suggested they pool their literary talents and co-write a better one, to which he breezily replied, well, I want to co-write the rest of my life with you, but sure, let's start with the menus. She laughed, shook her head, and with far more affection than she meant to show, said, you're an idiot. All the while, her left hand rested on the table, and they both ignored her wedding ring, sitting there like an item on an agenda, pushed late in the meeting. He put down his drink, and for barely a second, his fingers touched hers. She whipped her hand away in panic. Uh, I, I came to humanize you, she stammered, and met his eyes. They were enormous, god fucking damn it! His pupils dilated, they kept doing that. Was I not human to you? He asked, confused. I, uh, I just uh, needed to be in a room with you just to know that it's just a, she cringed, covered her eyes, and told her palms the thing, the stupid thing she knew to be true. I think our avatars might be in love. She moved her hands to her cheeks, and her gaze clipped him back into place with his. He tilted his head and said gently, as if trying not to break anything, uh, Avatars. And for four minutes, their bodies stirred. Their avatars screamed at every pulse, every exquisite, life-ruining beat of it. Silence tortures avatars. In the fourth minute, a crisp jolt of panic raced through her body and she pushed her chair back. His body darted forward and took her forefinger between his finger and his thumb. The cafe froze around them, tumbled into two dimensions. He found the pause button for time and space, just between her first and second knuckle. The people around them became a painted scene, their sipping and smiling suspended, the steam blasting from the milk frother, a smatter of oil on canvas. Her eyes darted to the brush strokes of the door, now impossible to walk through. Their avatars sent, holds your hand emojis, and waited to be torn apart. His body stepped towards hers, interlaced their fingers, and ruined everything. Avatars can't be in love, he said. That's not a thing. The paint evaporated, and they fell through the floor. The cafe clattered back to life, and London rattled into rubble around their heads. 
Her veins stretched and sang and vibrated as their bodies vaporized and curled into a tornado beneath a city, heading down, down, down. Their avatars blinked. With their bodies absent, the silence was theirs to fill. Him. Are they coming back? Her. I don't know. She said we're in love. He said we can't be. Are we, do you think? Not without them, surely? You know we can't just say it. Say what? What do you think? Leave him? Be with me? Right. I love you. I'm in love with you. Okay? I get it. Marry me in a Mexican hurricane? Alright. I get it. There was a torture pause. She won't do it, will she? Torture pause. Hell silence. Okay. I'm sorry. It's okay. The words, don't go, refuse to pass her fingers. So her avatar whispered them inaudibly to herself. Can I at least tell you once without the quotation marks? No, don't. His avatar typed, deleted, went offline, came back online, typed, deleted, and typed. I am. I do. I'm sorry. Her body woke up, cracked and whole, in the fetal position, in three dimensions, in her own comfy bed. She reached for her phone like a junkie for a needle and looked for his avatar. It was blank, an empty circle without a name. The messages were all still there, but without his avatar beside them, it seemed hollow. Tragic. Memories made bitter. He was gone again. Her chest emptied out through the puncture, and she hoped, stupidly, far too romantically, that his body had been wrong, that avatars can be in love, and that theirs had just run away together to some magical far-off place, free of eye contact and silence. And because heartbreak just adds pain to our routines, she opened Twitter. She scrolled slowly, mindlessly, the news of the day dripping down the screen like tar. She stopped on a minor story, clasped her phone as she read it again, it was about a community centre on the western coast of Mexico, in Playa Ventura, just south of Acapulco. They were holding an impromptu 
slumber party to provide shelter and a way to pass the hours during a small but bothersome hurricane heading right for them. before the interval will be Hull to Haddon Hall by Lauren Van Schaik, read by David Milton. Lauren's short stories have appeared in the White Review, the Cincinnati Review, and previously at Liars League. She has an MA in Creative Writing from the University of East Anglia, where she won the David Pickham Award, and in 2018 her novel in progress, Joplin, was shortlisted for the Lucy Cavendish Prize. David is an actor, playwright, and founding member of Liars League. His stories, Worms Feast and Red, were read here and appear in Arachne Press Anthology, London Lies and Weird Lies. Plays, The Flood and Leaves, have both been produced on the London stage along with many shorter pieces. Acting work includes the Nationals' production of Consent at Harold Pinter. David! Hull to Haddon Hall by Lauren Van Schaik. Mick's gold lame jumpsuit reeked of sweat, of beer, of that gummy stage makeup in the armpits and down the crotch. He noticed when he shimmied into it in the green room, zipping it to his sternum. He could have had it washed, he imagined, but could you dry clean a thing like that? He couldn't imagine picking it up in a swishy, loud garment bag, the winking looks from behind the counter. He couldn't imagine even being in a dry cleaner or a laundrette, watching the gold lame spin like an astronaut tumbling in a rocket ship, like a man washing his mam's best Debenhams dress. And anyway, there hadn't been time for any washing, with their nightly reel of gigs and festivals, the old grey whistle test, and now top of the pops. Pinching, they were on the beam. They beamed into everyone and their nan's sitting rooms, like the moonwalk, like Ted Heath, like all his rock heroes. He remembered watching the Yardbirds on this show, face pressed so close to the screen that his hair static, so he could see Jeff Beck's fingers ripple. It barely even mattered that Mick was going on with a man that Melody Maker had recently called as camp as a row of tents. And Mick's dad had called, well, never mind what Mick's dad had called him. Ten minute warning. Dark fringe in a clipboard angling round the green room door. There had been other costume suggestions, of course. David was fizzing with them like hangover aspirin in a glass. Turquoise suits. Knitted cat suits with half the arms and legs missing, designed that way by some Japanese guy. A pig-printed baby grow he and Angie should have put their kid in, who was always naked. Silk dresses, David insisted, were actually designed for men as he swooned around in them, acting like some Arthurian legend or Elizabeth Taylor. All the sort of thing that would get a man punched, or worse, if he ever wore it north of Watford. 
the type of thing that women would never even dream of wearing if they knew what was good for them. Today, when Mick saw him during a sound check, David was in a quilted fluorescent jumpsuit and platform boots that matched his team's spaghetti hair, looking like Willy Wonka or a headache more than an extraterrestrial. Mick didn't trust David's ideas about Mars. Hey, pretty boy, stop admiring yourself. Trevor elbowing him away from the mirror. He was trying to get the slap out of his silver-dyed sideburns. He was in moon boots and a blue jumpsuit, shimmering even under the green room lights. But that blue was the colour of an American sports car, and Trevor had clung to those bushy, dangling sideburns by letting Angie bleach and tint them with crow. Mick should have thought of that, but he squinted again in the mirror over Trevor's head. Would a green-dyed moustache have let him hang on to any of his tattered masculinity? God, you stink, Trevor said. That help, Mick thought. <laughs> he sniffed, and uh, it was a little like the smell of his whole corporation overalls when he dropped them into his mother's hamper on Friday evening after a week of tending to municipal hedges and football pitches, crusted with dirt, a yeast of sweat and beer baked into the fabric, and the cloying scent of mulch hanging over all that like a tart's perfume. That smell was present even after the hamper lid clammed shut and would follow him down the stairs. But his mum had concoctions, aerial powder and bleach, and somehow the overalls were all returned to him on Sunday evening, scrubbed, sometimes stitched, and smelling faintly of candy floss and the breeze on their estate. And his girlfriend up there, Denise, she liked the reek on him said as she lay back on the settee in her mum's sitting room and shivered off her cardigan, it made him smell like a man. But Denise was gone, and after just a week in London, a week at Haddon Hall, a week of David and Angie swapping outfits and playing sex games and seances in the parlour, a week of sleeping on a harem spread of mattresses on the landing, and then there had been uh, the incident with the mimes. <laughs> Mick had begged, although in retrospect not as hard as he could have. He could have got down on his knees, but the carpet was covered in Chinese pottery, most of it recruited as ashtrays, and the stranger, yet another man with a handbag, was pretending to sleep on the couch. Finally, he and Denise had it out under the gingerbread moulding on the porch. You know, I don't agree with this either. The, the costumes, the noise. Denise, please. Oh, there are parts of this you do agree with. In the end, he hadn't been able to get the white mind makeup out of the crotch of his jeans or explain it away. And Denise had gone back up north. It was the first time he'd ever wished he knew how to do laundry. He last saw her at the coach station, suitcase with all her clothing swinging under her belly, and within a month she was phoning him from Hull Royal Infirmary, saying his son had been born and she was naming him Nicholas. He had a few photos of Nicholas, sent down second class post, the envelope dirty like it had been stepped on. He kept one in his guitar case for a while, but it got crumpled where it folded, colours rainbowing like petrol spilled on a road. He should look for the other photographs, see where they'd got to. 
it seemed to just drift off into the occult jumble of Haddon Hall, with the silver-painted ceilings, the Buddhists and swappable boyfriends always traipsing through, and David's brother fresh off a section in ranting in the kitchen. No, Denise had been right. It wasn't a good scene for a kid, or even Polaroids of him. He wasn't sure what David and Angie were doing there with a kid themselves, named like a toy robot, toddling around between the amps and the dragging velvet curtains. Angie never paid him much attention. She was too busy goading David and his manias for Kabuki, or was it Kubrick, depending on the week, for mine, all those things luring him away from rock and roll. Too busy making acrobatic noises from their bedroom, carried all the way down the acre-long hallway, even over the new T-Rex, and revving the sewing machine in the turreted parlour, whipping up more girly, outrageous costumes for them all. Meg, Meg, darling, in that American voice, can I measure your thighs? In the mirror, Trevor wrinkled his nose. Can't you wash that thing? They'll smell you through the television. <laughs> that made Mick smile. All those kids with their eyes super glued to the BBC, sniffing something more than their mother's beans and mash, something that wasn't David's patchouli and French perfume, something that wasn't Stardust either. Mick actually imagined that space smelled like chemicals, like emptiness, like Elmer in Denise's hair and David's and his mouth. No, this was something earlier than that, ripening from the edges of hope. Five minutes, lads. The lads from the BBC again, her voice gently chiding. We're the spiders, love. Trevor said, half swagger, half mocking it all. Yeah, from Mars, isn't it? The door squeaked open further. That's what it says here. Her finger nail tapped on the clipboard. Nice of you to come all this way. Where are you from, love? Mick turned and she was blowing that fringe off her pretty forehead, saying, Basingstoke, <laughs> lowering the clipboard to show jumper tips. And she was looking at him, more than she was Trevor, and his basset out of face. Of course she was. You have eyelashes like a cow, Angie told Mick just last week. Some weird American fetish, he thought. Angie was full of them farm animals this time. But when he let a stroke mascara onto his eyelashes, he couldn't deny girls looked at him even more. And they'd always looked at him. He'd had his pick of lasses on the Greyfield estate of all his sister Maggie's friends, of David's fave mine crew leaving their white makeup and all the pillows on the bed on the landing. But with clumpy spider-leg eyelashes, they looked at him even more took off their shirts faster, seemed desperate to get him out of his silly clothes. Trevor saw Miss Basingstoke's gooey eyes and admitted defeat, pushed past her and out of the green room. She was still looking at Mick, biting her lip. I heard a secret that you're uh, actually from Hull. Her plastic bangles clinked up and down her arms as her wrists moved as she swung her hair behind her shoulder. Mick nodded. The mascara and the gold jumpsuit help, but you couldn't beat the strong, silent thing. And anyway, he couldn't he could already hear the amp zapping, Woody pegging out a steady beat. 
But he'd think about those bracelets clinking up and down all through Starman as David swanned around him. I had to phone someone, so I picked on you. <laughs> Later, as they pulled out of White City in the limo, he saw them kids, acres of them, in stardust makeup and fuck me pumps, waving wind-tattered posters and screaming. Auntie B, the cherry picked some kids in sweater vests to sway behind the spiders on top of the pops. But here were David's real most feral fans, probably some of the crew hung around Haddon Hall like refugees from a starship crash. The boys indistinguishable from the girls, like the youth had hurried up and evolved themselves out of gender into shimmering catsuits. At least Miss Basingstoke still knew how it worked between men and women. She landed in Mitch's lap before they even crossed the Thames. Trevor had scrunched out his moon boots and his tube socks smelt like corn chips and toenails. And that was overriding the beery reek of mixed gold lame, so she sidled even closer. Angie slithered her hands into David's catsuit, nudging down the zipper. You were super knocked him dead. Every kid who watched that tonight wants to be you. <coughs> or do you? She'd been like this since the BBC bar, jabbering on as if David had just completed the moon landing himself. As if by standing onto that peach soundstage carpet and into England's front rooms, he'd taken one giant leap for mankind onto the cratered Swiss cheese surface of rock superstardom and all by himself. Did she even remember the end of David's song about that, Mick wondered. A man untethered from home, floating away in a tin can, but never mind that. Management was talking about an American tour, the, the bus that would swoosh in between Cleveland and Dallas. Do you think we'll get to meet Andy Warhol? I wrote him that song, David said quietly. He was trying to act wounded because someone at the BBC bar had asked if they'd all wandered in off the set of Doctor Who. <laughs> but Mick reckoned he was secretly flattered. This is taking forever. Miss Basingstoke, husky in Mick's ear. Where do you live? Beckenham, Bromley. This uh, mansion here, the, the, the ground floor at least. She squirmed off his lap. God, you have come from Mars. He still managed to get her up to the landing where the spiders slept, but only after a communal showing of Fritz Lang's Metropolis, a gong bath, force lifts, Zowie crying, crawling out of bed twice, and Angie taking off her top. When David whisked out a beret and a bouquet of rubber flowers, Nick saw his emphasis. He remembered when rock was about respectable, old-fashioned debauchery, women, and drink. At least here, on the crazy paving of mattresses and Indian blankets, men were men and women were women. And this one was pulling a jumper over her head. Musical interlude. Something women like, like Marvin Gaye. Denise had always nixed the Stooges, although that was loud enough that his parents couldn't hear through the whisper-thin walls. Hey, what was this? Miss Basingstoke was pulling something out from under his pillow, pulling the plug on his spell. A crumpled photograph, she smoothed it on the sheets between them. It was taken in Mick's parents' front room, Denise and Nicholas on the settee. Who's this? That's, uh, my girlfriend, ex-girlfriend and son. 
happened. She didn't like London. She didn't like it here. Miss Basingstoke nodded as if she knew. That night, through a haze of Afghan gold, Nick thought that maybe when he went back north at Christmas, if he went back north, although he couldn't imagine what half-naked Buddhist perversions David and Angie would inflict on Christmas, he'd get his bleeding jumpsuit washed. He'd ask his mum about it. to spread malicious gossip and indulge in entirely unethical behaviour, all over a fresh drink. You have 15 minutes. Hello again! Hello! Now, are you all ready for the infamous Lively Book Quiz? Yes. Are they ready? Mm. Right. As befits a den of iniquity such as this, as the lights have just gone down, we can't actually see you, which is probably a good thing. So if you think you know the answer, wave your arms madly in the air and also shout, I'm Spartacus. <laughs> Shall we try that? One, two, three. I'm Spartacus! Glorious. Okay, um, shall we introduce the books? Absolutely. We've got... Perhaps the jewel in our crown. Uh, also available at the uh, anthology sales desk is the Liars League Lovers Lives Anthology. Designed expressly for romantic cynics and cynical romantics. Love, lust and everything in between. We also have Jenny Barden's Mistress of the Sea. For fortune, for love, for vengeance. If you like your historical fiction, particularly set in Plymouth, 1570, you will greatly enjoy Jenny Barden's novel. Uh, from the award-winning comedy writer Jonathan Harvey, who I think, what did you write? Was it the one about the gay best friend? And the... Oh, yes, okay, right, I probably tell her back. From the award-winning writer Jonathan Harvey, all she wants, laugh out loud, says Marion Keyes. Utterly original, says Jojo Moyes. And the question they pose on the front cover is, what happens when the girl next door becomes that girl off the telly? <laughs> uh, Sweet Caress by William Boyd, best-selling author of Any Human Heart and Restless. And the Independent on Sunday itself called him English Fiction's Master Storyteller. He could be yours. And in, in book form. In book form. <laughs> yes, no, not, not the man I mean, himself. We are good, but we're not that good. We can't <laughs> promise that much. And finally, if you just can't be bothered with reading books, why not play Lovesick? Which is going to ease a lonely heart or calm the flames of desire, depending on which you want. Enjoy. <laughs> okay, now. Five questions, five prizes. Let's go. In a scandal in Bohemia, from whom does Sherlock Holmes attempt to retrieve a compromising photograph? 
It's so. It's, oh yes. Is correct. Are you scientists? All right, okay. Technical, technical, technical foul, but we'll let you. What would you like? Oh my gosh. I don't know. I have, I have drinking gin. Um, which one would you get? I would probably. Oh yeah, can I have that? The, 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 the finest fiction available to me. I was drinking gin and I'm also bad at quizzes. Surprise so oh, so yourself with your knowledge. Second question. Which reclusive billionaire's authorised autobiography did Clifford Irving fake in the 1970s? Oh, oh, who's Spartacus? Uh, are you? Okay, all right, are you both Spartacus? And so's my wife. It's Howard Hughes. It's Howard Hughes, it is. Well, is that right? It is the correct I, I answer. Right. Okay. There was a definite... Howard Hughes and then I Spartacus, and it all got very confusing. But the rules are I Spartacus first, people. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> What's coming off you? Uh, take me to the <laughs> <laughs> There we go. Third question Who wrote the 1850 novel The Scarlet Letter? I'm Scarlet Oh, yes, at the back there, sir. It is correct. It was. Well done. Good prize. Yes. Can I borrow it first? Can I borrow it first? Is what you're saying. Hey, you answer a question. Come on. <laughs> Fourth question. Which playwright, novelist, journalist, poet, and wit wrote? Scandal is gossip made tedious by morality. I am Spartacus. Oh, all right. I don't know, but I'm guessing no, Coward. Not oh. the right answer, sorry. Did we have another Spartacus? I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. It was it Oscar was Wilde, well and it's from In Lady Windermere's Fan. No good at quizzes. No good at quizzes. <laughs> mm, I think we have a up. ringer. Okay. Sweet caress or lovesick card game? Um, uh, uh, sweet caress. Okay. So we're playing for the card game, people. Who wrote the 2010 biblical retelling the good man Jesus and the scoundrel Christ. Oh, are you? Uh, it's correct answer. Oh, well done, sir. There you go. Very well done. It's a good thing because we didn't have any spare questions. <laughs> so, shall we get on with the stories? Yeah. Yes. Excellent news. So, the fourth story of the evening and the first of the second half is Alethea by Catty Pitt, read by Paul Clock. Catty is an art gallery curator with a background in English literature and 19th century cultural history, and a very uncool passion for vintage comedy. <coughs> Enthusiast of all things macabre and classical, sometimes amateur wrestler, and walker of strange places in sturdy Doc Martens. Paul trained at the Central School and always got cast as a baddie or a monster. Or, just to mix it up, a bad monster. Now a photographer and occasional performer, he finds the League's stories islands of relative sanity 
in his life, which is quite worrying. Paul! <laughs> Alethea by Catty Pierce. It is not our custom to invite strangers here, you know, for obvious reasons. Except, of course, on our treat days. Every leap year, our keepers permit just one resident to invite a guest to join us. And given the general sense of irony in here, it's always on Valentine's Day. Read nothing into that. It's simply an institutional joke. We take it in turns. It staves off the loneliness and the despair that follows. Today, the honour has fallen to me. You are my choice, my treat. But why you? Oh, well, I've read your column, of course. I enjoy your hyperbole, your witty turns of phrase, and I do so enjoy your amoral stances or whatever little tidbits you happen to pick up around town. But dying art these days, the art of the high society gossip monger. Alethea. Your pen name amuses me. The disclosure of truth. <laughs> Though it's Perhaps a little naughty of you to be so set upon the disclosure of truth, but not the disclosure of your real name. Forgive me for grubbing around to find it. But my God, your work has turned stale recently, don't you think? Oh, no, no, please, don't take offence. Merely listen. I am here to help you. I'm offering you a gift. The gift of material, fresh material for your avid public. I will tell it, and you will write it. Anonymise it, naturally. I, I should take great pleasure in, in reading it back to myself in the dark nights. I, I trust you to use what I have to tell you wisely. And then you will never contact me, never return here again. Do you understand? Welcome to Dashwood Mansions. What an unconventional little coterie we are here, hidden away in this drafty old pile, hidden by design. Though in plain sight, rumours of our existence abound, I dare say. Are we even here at all? <laughs> but as you see, the apartments are real enough, as are their inhabitants. Quite real. I believe I'm giving you what they call a scoop. You seem underwhelmed. Well, I admit it's, it's hardly an opulent building. Faded glamour, one might say. Again, much like the inhabitants. We fade, we decay, yet we endure, despite all we have done. We are here because we got caught. But being too important, too wealthy or well-born, we're subject to different penalties from the common criminals and the bourgeois offenders of bourgeois taste. They shut us away so that we may ponder our sins in peace and comfort.
not for our own benefit, of course, but for the families, the reputations, the inheritances. Allow me to introduce the household. On the ground floor, the money people, the frauds, the embezzlers, sellers of shares in the non-existent, dealers in the unspeakable trades. Those who sold commissions or dangerously adulterated goods or sold their friends or sold out their country. I could never understand the appeal of all that. Much more trouble than it's worth and for what pleasure beyond simple avarice. Rapacious locusts. Uh, above them, in physical space only, the murderers, poisoners, stranglers, butchers, the stupid ones who removed those who would be missed and were too proud to enlist help, so did it themselves. The ones that disposed of the wrong people, their own, or those with powerful friends. So many well-known names on the doors of those corridors, each with their own bloody account book of usurping infant heirs, inconvenient by-blows, love rivals, business rivals, the parents who would not just do the decent thing and die when the gambling debts came on you. Fools, impulsive fools, scheming fools, no psychotics, mind. There are other places for them to go. Here, you will find only those in their right minds. And at the very top, here, in the attic, as far away from the streets as possible, the deviants, the pornographers, and the pederasts, the rapists, the two obvious incests, the unconscionable, irredeemable perverts who could not be induced to stop. None of our misdemeanors were kept behind closed doors, so now we must be scoundrels all. You may note I've said nothing of the basement. There we have only one subterranean dweller, the prince. Yes, that one. Or to give him the well-earned moniker bestowed by the rotting courtesans of the continent, the infector. Now quarantined, sterilised, not quite as dead as the newspapers would have you believe. He really did spoil rather a lot of parties. Ruined many a grand tour and many a pretty face. But we shall not refer to him again. Where to begin? Apartment 12. Lady Mary Addison, canny girl, made a fortune in husbands, but had a few too many, and then a great many too few for the authorities not to notice. Perhaps apartment 32, Captain James Rasmussen, his particular peccadillo, twins, his own sisters, I ask you. <laughs> it turns out that twins ran in the family and ran, and ran. <laughs> Baroque for a man to be father to his own four nieces. Apartment 40, the Honourable Henry Bellingham filled the back shelves of Hollywell Street with his creative little photographs. A blessing of the modern world, the camera. Such treasures we may see through it. Such happy, happy gentlemen. <laughs> Animals too. All very pastoral. There's a question in her eyes. Ask it. Oh, yes. My offences, my so-called. 
Domestic bliss was my offence. The realisation of private dreams and a little establishment of my own, tucked away from prying respectability, where anything and everything a man or a woman might desire was possible and permitted for a fair price. My business was not in the ordinary way of things. It was specialist. What do people want most in this world but youth and beauty? And if they themselves are blessed with neither, there are places they can go to obtain them. Possess them, if only briefly. And while beauty may be in the eye of the beholder, youth is self-evident. It certainly was in my household. You know, a sneer of disgust, <laughs> yes. That is, I'm led to believe, the normal response. But why disgust? I can think of many more disgusting things. For one, the rank hypocrisy of the righteous who throw charity at the destitute but never trouble themselves to intervene in their circumstances. A penny here, a bowl of soup there, and back to the Sunday service to pray for their souls. Does it occur to the upright to provide real opportunity to those for whom they weep? And am I to be excoriated and outcast for simply bestowing gainful employment on the scum of the earth, for rendering the worthless economically viable? Is the workhouse so very different from the whorehouse? Suffer the little ones to come unto me, saith the Lord, and so say I. They're not starved, not oppressed by canting pastors and sour-faced spinsters in black bonnets. They were made special, given a use, a meaning. They brought and received pleasure. They were clothed in the finest and fattened with sweetmeats. They slept on feather beds instead of louse-infested sacks. Materially, they became indistinguishable from the offspring of the comfortable classes and better treated, from all I know of the world, peek behind the doors of lawyers and insurancemen and bank clerks and you will find far more miserable brats than mine. My little kittens were warm and clean and so very grateful. How about their souls? What of their souls? Well, what of yours? How many begging unfortunates do you pass by in a day? How many pennies are enough to assuage your conscience? Even that word unfortunate. It's fatalistic. You have decided that by luck or by desert, the slums and the streets are the rightful place for so much inadequate humanity. I have never looked upon them as such. I have only ever seen potential. My only error was in thinking it could last. It is interesting to see how easily it, that can be destroyed, what has been so carefully built. Creation, progress, growth, the work of years. Destruction, the work of moments. It only takes one pebble dropped into a calm pool for the ripples to spread outwards and disturb the peace. One little intervention to wreak havoc and downfall. 
I worked hard to vet our clients and our stable. But one cannot plan for every eventuality, alas. Investigative journalism, they call it. You will know all about it in your line of work. You know your business, as I knew mine. Gone are the days when the stories came to you. Now you go out and find them. Or create them. It is efficient, I give you that. But I ask myself, how deranged must a journalist be to buy up a pretty little flower off the street and send it to me to be bought all over again purely for the purposes of a good story? How riddled by arrogance must he be to pay another man to pose as a genuine customer merely to give himself something to write about? He didn't have the courage to come himself to try our wares. No! Not W.M. Stanhope, self-appointed protector of public decency, defender of the exploited. Perhaps he thought he'd be tempted after all. No, he paid for a little scenario and he wrote the expose. Babylon revealed. Sodom and Gomorrah in modern London. The evils of the white slave the vocabulary is telling, don't you think? Who we choose to care about and whom it offends. Stanhope, the harbinger of justice. Stanhope, the redeemer, lauded and promoted. Whereas I was dragged through the mud and hushed up, sent here to live out my days in deep contemplation of right and wrong. I'm no further on in that respect. Quite the Fleet Street hero he became. Or should I say, you, Alethea, W.M. Stanhope, to give you your full byline, yet even that is not your real name, is it? Happily, I'm not quite so cut off from the world that I can't find these things out. Little kittens still mew to me when I require them to. Please do not trouble to deny it. You have many a professional pseudonym, I quite understand, so, so did I. Yet I see that you don't recognise me at all. Why should you? I was simply a name on a front page for a few days before the next big crusade began and the next worst scandal and so on and so on ad infinitum. Where does it end, Alethea? Can you sniff out every scandal in the world? A man must make a living. I know that's all I was doing before your intercession. But while I was a whoremonger, you were simply a whore. If you but knew it, how you turned your pen in the direction of the money. One minute a guardian of morals, bellowing hellfire from the front pages, demanding the restoration of Christian values and virtues, condemning the procurers, the beyond-the-pale corruptors, condemning me! When the popular taste cries out for enjoyable scandal, entertaining scandal, there you are to write that too. We smirk as one of the base foibles of the rich. <laughs> Mr. X, the latest co-respondent in the titillating case of Madame Y. Dr. A, lately seen visiting the bawdy houses of B Street to W1. There is no hypocrisy like 
profess hypocrisy. Oh, how you can. Oh, how you profit. The unpleasant truth, Mr. Stanhope, is that I am not the social evil. You are. And so you must be put away, as we have been. My neighbours and I shall pay you out at last on this, my treat day, when we're permitted one guest from the outside world who will never be seen again. No, please don't bother. It's pointless to attempt to escape. Our keepers will not help you. They permit us our occasional pleasure for the sake of our sanity and their ease. It's astounding what one can turn a blind eye to where profit is concerned. And ethics must never get in the way of professional success. Will there be some disappointed sweetheart waiting hopelessly in a restaurant for you tonight? Some lovely, upright girl with a twee romantic card she will never give you. Oh, well. <laughs> she will forget. Innocent people do, you know. They turn the pages of the newspapers so quickly. I do wonder who they will pay to write about your disappearance. And who, finally, shall pen the obituary. Thank you, Paul. Now, before the final story of the evening, before our final tittle-tattle tale, some notices. Those of you who don't follow the Lions Facebook or Twitter pages have probably missed the announcement of this year's themes. So a quick recap for any writers in the house. Up next is Young and Old. The deadline is March the 1st and the event is two months time here, April 14th. Then it's Mystery and Suspense, followed by our annual Woman and Girls theme, Halloween Hide and Seek, and a Christmas Heart and Soul. Dates and deadlines are on the Lions webpage that you probably won't read, but now you know it exists. <laughs> and so, on to the final story of the evening, which is What Now? by Enzo Kohari Franca, read by Kevin Chen. Born in Brazil to Japanese and Italian parents, Enzo studied photojournalism at the University of Arts London and documented conflicts in Eastern Europe, Ukraine and Macedonia. His work has been published by the Tishman Review, the Fortnightly Review, and shortlisted for the 2019 Tilly Olson Award and the 2019 Hammond House Award. Kevin's selected credits include The Theatre, Yellow Effects, Chimerica, and Snow in Midsummer, Paper Dolls, and his film credits include A Christmas Prince, The Royal Baby, Close, Unlocked, The Resort, and his television credits include Tyrant, Criminal Minds, Pure Genius, EastEnders, and for radio, Fear of Flying. Kevin! <laughs> what Now? by Enzo Kohara Franca. 
Some called it the fourth industrial revolution. Others, the third wave of automation. Terminology aside, we all knew what they meant. Truck drivers, radiologists, abstract painters, all had been bettered by algorithms. And now it was our turn. Amateur adult actors. Many a journalist has interviewed those in our profession and, and come back with horror stories about our upbringing. Parents enslaved by opioids, partners with a taste for extreme violence. Trust me, those cliches aren't true of us. Manuela, my co-director, my fiance, is the daughter of two exemplary Brazilian citizens. Her father is a retired civil engineer, her mother a soon-to-be-retired dermatologist. They're both supporters of President Bolsonaro. As for me, I come from a family of idealistic artists. Dad spent the 90s making speeches in dimly lit Sao Paulo bars, claiming he'd soon bring down Hollywood and make cinema a true form of art. Mom thought of herself as a Japanese-Brazilian Nina Simone, a jazzy J-pop visionary. In her heyday, she was banned from 94 out of Sao Paulo's 98 karaoke bars for disorderly behavior. She'd asked the senescent DJ for an Asian classic, a tune that made her contemporaries think of their parents and the old island, just to sing it as insultingly as possible. Mom lived to shock the Japanese-Brazilian community. It was while studying graphic design that Manu and I met. It was while learning about the psychology of everyday objects, as our hero, the cognitive engineer Don Norman, had phrased it, that Manuela Schwartzchild and I fell in love. Professor Norman had showed us that door handles, water caps, and push buttons all nudged our unconscious towards a certain kind of action. Design them wrong, and an airplane pilot will make a fatal decision. Great design saves lives. Uninterested in the greater good, we design impossible objects. A tea kettle with a handle and a nozzle on the same side. Two bicycles sharing a front wheel, their handlebars facing each other. After graduating in 2017, Manu and I quickly learned the Brazilian market wasn't ready for our vision. <laughs> to complicate matters, our prospective employers now had the option of going online and commissioning creatives from even cheaper parts of the world. Manu thought about moving abroad. Her paternal grandparents had fled Germany for mysterious reasons, just as World War II had ended, and she was entitled to German citizenship. Brazil aside, I could only reside legally in Japan. I could apply for a working visa and slave away in a farm or a factory, like several of my cousins and uncles. A highly unappealing prospect. Did Manu and I want to be rich? Did we want to be revolutionaries? I had just turned 22. My only credential was a bachelor's degree in a high-risk, low-reward industry. What I really wanted was to rewind time and go back to being a child. Like Holden Caulfield, I wanted to stop everyone from growing up. But Manuela was the opposite of J.D. Salinger. In the script she wrote for our lives, we couldn't help but move forward. And move forward we did. In one of our 
Many idle, uncertain afternoons, Manuela showed me a nude self-portrait she had sold to suicide chicks. She was lying on a red hammock on her parents' balcony, Sao Paulo's gray, communist-looking apartment blocks in the background. She was wearing nothing but her nose-piercing and her Afro-Brazilian spiritist skull tattoos. She had her tongue all over a green coconut. Suicide Chicks was a website and fashion brand dedicated to non-conformist beauty. Alternative models made a living selling them erotic content. What if we went one step further? Manuela pretended to ask me. As I said, she was the one scripting our existence, and her question was in fact the clearest of orders. Setting up a channel on Camscura, an online marketplace of for erotic experiences, was easier than we thought. We made up an email address, uploaded fake ID cards, and registered by PayPal to receive our wages, since Manu still shared a bank account with her parents. In the Camscura world, Obscura tokens were the currency. These allowed users to access our webcam and to lobby us to act out their fantasies. For six tokens, Manuela would twerk naked while I stood by eating a Vienna sausage. <laughs> For seven tokens, I'd lick her armpit as she pinched my ear, singing Hotel California. It surprised us at first how little interest there was in traditional lovemaking. Penetration was passé. The absurd was now the norm. Unlike all of our previous ideas, this was an instant, unambiguous success. Within two months, we had the funds to rent a small apartment in the west zone of Sao Paulo. Our office, our studio, our stage moved from Manu's bedroom in her parents' home to a place we could call our own. Focused on growth, Manuela asked me for my thoughts on using social media to monetize our popularity. She wanted to create TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter pages. She wanted maximum power over how we were perceived. Manu and I knew we were, knew we were running out of time. Soon, very soon, an acquaintance would find our oeuvre online. When that happened, our parents would learn their kids had swapped graphic design for adult entertainment wasting years of private schooling, extracurricular courses, educational family holidays. An alternative, Manu argued, would be to embrace our new identities. We could sit with the old timers and explain our reasoning without shame, without regret. We could frame the narrative to our advantage. Manu was right and wrong. She was right about the benefits of making the first move, of not being caught by surprise. She was wrong that love, sincerity, and openness were enough to convince mom and dad it was normal to expose ourselves on the internet. My parents and Manu's father cut us off. Only her sobbing mother accepted her daughter's choice. Mrs. Schwarzschild's tolerance, however, was restricted to Manuela. Later, the old lady would go on record blaming me for corrupting her innocent little girl. We attracted the attention of the mainstream media. Liberal and conservative newspapers queued up to interview us. Two college-educated millennials from law-abiding middle-class families choosing a career in porno. Our Instagram page quickly reached 300,000 followers. My email inbox was 
full of requests for collaborations. Suddenly, all lingerie brands wanted to clothe Manu. All condom brands wanted to sheathe me. <laughs> we were offered roles in productions with the greats, like Ron Hedgehog Jeremy and Stormy Flotus Daniels. <laughs> Despite the allure of international fame, we passed on invitations to perform with others. Sharing our sex life with strangers took something important away from our relationship. To make up for this absence, we agreed to only act together, no matter how tempting the offer. Sure, this deal was much harder on Manu than me. She was the one gringo producers were after. They wanted her as Mary Magdalene in the arms of twelve horny apostles, while the Messiah slept oblivious in the next room. They wanted her as Helen of Troy, turning that most epic of wars into the most epic of orgies. To wit, I wasn't just an extra in Manu's productions, even if sometimes I felt like an extra in her life. The Japanese in Brazil are a so-called model minority, well-educated, well-behaved, well-off. Watching a member of this harmless group rebel excited Brazilians in deep and unpredictable ways. Video footage of my mother's karaoke performances resurfaced. A couple of highly experimental short movies my father had made 20 years earlier were uploaded on YouTube. In the 2018 presidential election, the pro-torture candidate used us, and me in particular, to illustrate how globalization had corrupted Christian values. Death threats ensued. A chunk of our budget was now spent on security measures. We thought again about moving abroad, since all we needed for work was a laptop and an internet connection. Manu woke me up one morning and said, We're going to Portugal. Landing in Europe, we bought a camcorder and tried to cast Brazilian expats in our erotic productions. We became co-directors. This was Manu's idea, of course. She knew we couldn't count on our bodies looking young forever, and pivoting to amateur porno production seemed to be the most reasonable next step. Three months and 300 videos later, just before our visa expired, we flew back home ready to start our media empire. Manu and I worked hard to promote those movies. We focused all of our resource, resources into making those actors porno stars. And yet, audiences cared only about our acting. We lost more than half of our savings trying to become filmmakers. I couldn't help but wonder, was this how Dad felt when reality forced him to give up on trying to make cinema a true form of art? For the first time in our relationship, I saw my girlfriend doubt her instincts. Her insecurity and lack of energy became visible in our performances. Even our most loyal fans complained something was missing. The final blow came when we were emailed footage of Manu as Marie Antoinette in bed with the royal cake maker, of me as Chairman Mao spreading STDs in communist China of her as Margaret Thatcher in a menage a trois with Gorbachev and Ronnie Reagan, of me as musician Psy doing a Gangnam style in downtown Seoul. <laughs> Those were us. Those were our faces, our bodies, our genitals. Our oeuvre had been fed to AI algorithms, and now anyone could create videos of Manu and me doing anything without paying us a centavo.
For a while, competition boosted our energy. In the last two years, adult entertainment had become central to our identities. It had given meaning to our lives. We fought back. We bought masks and costumes. In bed, I was President Trump, she was President Bolsonaro. I was Japanese PM Shinzo Abe, she was a minky whale. <laughs> Politicized porno made us again the center of attention. A German liberal newspaper offered Manu a column. Minor Brazilian parties asked for our endorsements. But soon after, our AI doppelgangers were all over the internet making love to past and present current, past and current political figures. We were disheartened. Traffic on our Camscura channel was so low we couldn't pay our bills. Our rent was several months overdue. We both knew we couldn't move back in with our parents. Depressed, demoralized, we overate and overslept. In a rare moment of anger, I threw our camera equipment out the window, smashing and killing a couple of hapless pigeons making love on the pavement. <laughs> Mano woke me up one morning holding a pair of berets and said it was about time we started the revolution. A brand new political party. A revolutionary movement. Transitioning from the adult industry to politics wasn't unheard of in Brazil. With a populist tyrant in power, with the leader of the opposition in jail for corruption, there was a vacuum in national politics. And who better than us to fill it? <clears throat> Manuela Schwarzschild saw herself as president of the New Republic in 2022, and me, standing there by her side to prove how far she had come, to witness how far she'd go. Thank you, Kevin. And that, you twisted, debauched, gloriously decadent audience is very much that. We'll be swapping rumours until they kick us out, so do stick around, otherwise those rumours will almost certainly be about you. Yes, you. If you do have to escape, perhaps for some illicit affair, well then go, but first, please, show your appreciation for our filthy-minded authors and our terribly badly behaved actors. Good night! <laughs> <laughs>